Welcome to today's episode. I know you are going to love today's guest because we're talking about being a mom in medicine, our careers as a reproductive endocrinologist and an obstetrician, dealing with mom guilt, traveling, making time for our relationships, and infertility that women in medicine deal with. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Stephanie Gaston, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, and why you became a reproductive endocrinologist. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to do medicine from probably age 12. And within that year, I evolved to knowing that I also wanted to do OBGYN, actually. I don't know if anybody listening remembers this, but there used to be this show called The Operation on a Learning Channel. Mm. And I used to watch it and was like totally enthralled and saw a C-section and was like, that's exactly what I want to do. So flash forward, my uncle is an OBGYN. And so when I was like in high school, I got to go and hang out with him and I really enjoyed it. And I really liked talking to women about reproductive health and was like just like a very open adolescent, young adult about just things that happen to women. And I think I was kind of a sounding board for you know, my sorority sisters and my friends about like their periods or whatnot. And so then I went to med school and I sort of went in thinking perhaps I would do anything. But when I landed on my labor and delivery rotation was like, fell in love with it. Yeah. yeah. Like the day just flew and I just was like, this is what I'm going to do. So then in my third year, we had some time to do some extra like subspecialty rotations if we wanted to. And I was able to go to the NIH for a little over a month to do research. And I got slated in this REI division and saw like the zebras, the ones that get you like really excited. I was like, this is so cool. And then I did an away rotation to check out Stanford. And that's like when I knew for sure I wanted to do REI. It was just like the couples and the patients that we met. I actually met like a 17-year-old who was born with malaria genesis, so no uterus, fallopian tube, cervix, vagina, who had created a vagina using dilators and was then developing some vaginal bleeding. And her mom was like, are they wrong? Is there any chance yeah. that she has a uterus? Um, and it was just from trauma. She didn't actually have a uterus. But then we had this long conversation about, you know, gestational carrier and how she could still have babies and this, that, and the other. And, and that just sort of sealed the deal. Like that was exactly what I wanted to do. So then when I applied for residency, really the only places I looked were places that had fellowships. Mm. And so Stanford was that place and I did my residency there and then stayed for fellowship and then came back to Nebraska where I am because that's where I'm from. And, and the dream job just sort of unveiled itself. Yeah. Um, and here I am. Just a yeah. divine path. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're in private practice. Mm-hmm. Tell me how your practice is structured. Yeah. So we are a private practice with a hybrid model where we're affiliated with the university. So we provide the resident education for the University of Nebraska Medical Center, OBGYN residents in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And I love that because that keeps us honest and current. It's I like think, best of both worlds. Yeah. TT yeah. requires you to know what's current and our field is continuously evolving. But on the flip side, we're a private practice. Um, and with that, we get to make um, the decisions that we want about how our practice functions in terms of the clinical medicine part. 
But for me also, it really allows me to use a different part of my brain, which is very fulfilling in terms of learning how to run a business, learning how important it is that if your employees um, feel supported and nourished in their own work, that that sentiment is translated to the patients and Mm -hmm. just working on um, retention with employees leads to retention with patients, so on and so forth. So I think that that part of owning a business has been a huge learning opportunity for me, but it's also been one of the most satisfying parts of my job. Yeah. It's hard when you're deciding, do you work for a health system versus being in private practice? That can be so intimidating for us because we don't have a background in business. I mean, there are some docs with MBAs, but I always wanted to go into private practice because I like that decision-making aspect. And um, I remember pulling into my garage one day thinking about the number of employees that just our practice, uh, you know, has and mm-hmm. that we get to provide for, but we do, you get to pick your team and you get to provide care the way you want it. And mm-hmm. I think it is kind of an extra fulfilling role for, uh, for some people. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody, but that's <laughs> for sure. Um, you also have children. Yes. I think this is a huge topic for women listening. I remember going through the process thinking about when would my husband and I start a family? When is the best time? Is there a best time? Can you talk to us about your decision to make a family and kind of where that happened in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew that I wanted to have kids, but I also knew that I wanted to pursue fellowship. And so more or less, as soon as I started my residency, I was offered an IUD and actually it was my chief resident that put it in. And (laughs) that was like, okay, four years, like we don't need to worry about this. But, um, thereafter, once I was in fellowship, it was, it was very, um, expected slash supported that fellows had babies. And I think part of it's because, you know, sitting for a year as the first year fellow, seeing all these people who are the exact same age as you struggling to get pregnant is like unnerving to say Mm -hmm. the least. So it was always that you know, unsaid expectation that the first year fellow got pregnant because it was like just so in our faces every day that yeah. people like us a problem were struggling you. with infertility. Exactly. And fellowship was, you know, there's built in time for research and it's just a different kind of expectation for um, presence and call, et cetera, that it, to me was much more supportive to have mm-hmm. kids because let's be honest, graduate school, um, residency education, even fellowship is probably the most selfish you could ever be in your life in terms of the amount of time that you need to give to something. And having a child is one of the most selfless things that you can do. And Mm so unless you have family or someone, your partner is completely able to pull way more than 50%. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really hard to have kids in training. And for me, I just knew that any extra time I had was going to be allotted towards pursuing my career. And so we waited until we were in fellowship. So I had my first kiddo in fellowship. And then once she was one, we sort of started trying for our second. And my hope was that I was, um, gosh, I kind of think I wanted to be like delivering before I started my second my first job. Wave that magical wand. <laughs> yeah. And then like, you know, then I had a miscarriage and you know, yeah. that kind of, that happens. And so then I remember I actually found out that I was pregnant the day we hopped on the plane to leave California to move to Nebraska. Um, so then I had my second one in my first year of practice mm-hmm. and then had my third, actually just 18 months later, yeah. <laughs> the, the third one kind of came in rapid succession. But, um, it 
it's a pretty incredible thing, but it's still even now doing what we do requires a village mm-hmm. to like do it well. Absolutely. I would say. Absolutely. I had so much help. You know, one of the best pieces of advice I got a female surgeon, Wendy Grant, she's a transplant surgeon at UMC. I hope she's listening to this because this is one piece of advice that has just never left my mind. She said, Jamie, have children in residency, your time is protected. Have babies in your training, your time is protected. And, you know, you're sitting over here saying like, they're telling you, get your birth control, do not get pregnant while you're in your training. Like there's so much judgment. Um, But I had my first daughter when I was coming into my fourth year med school, had two babies in residency. Um, And honestly, it is, it is kind of true. Like now I'm in private practice. My time was really protected, you know, Um, but there is a lot of judgment for people, you know, at certain parts of their career and certain parts of their training. And, you know, there really is no right time. And it does take a lot of help and support. I would have never been able to do it had we not matched here in my home state where I had a mom and a mother-in-law and, and people and a husband that kind of almost worked an opposite job of me. And he really could, you know, pull more parenting, you know, than I could. And um, yeah, God bless the the women in medicine that somehow make it work. Did you breastfeed with your, with your kids? Mm-hmm. I did. I, I was lucky in that it was not something that was challenging for me. So I was able to breastfeed all of them for a year, each of them. Um, and I had a really supportive environment. I mean, OBGYNs should be supportive of right. They should be the most, but they're not always. Not always. I was going to say, except that when we forget. Yeah. But yeah, so I was able to do that, and and that was helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, but oh that's a full time job. Oh yeah, I remember pumping in bathroom yeah. stalls and like just trying to be creative, or you're on some rotation that has like long surgical hours, and you're like, uh, I like I need a 15 minute break. My chest is about to explode. Yeah. In fact, actually, before my oral boards for general OBGYN maybe, I had to pump in the bathroom of that little waiting area oh before you walk into the boards. It was like wow, hand pump, like hot mess, but yeah. Like the things that you right? endure now, like, you get okay. to think back and laugh about it. Right. Um, okay. So talk about being a mom in medicine. Like, do you have mom guilt? How do you, uh, how do you be a mom and have a job? Yeah. So I, I may be in isolation in the sentiment, but one of my favorite mentors said something to me that I can't ever erase, which is she said, guilt is a wasted emotion. Mm. So I really don't lament in guilt about just about anything, quite honestly. Um, I was raised by a single parent. My mom, um, my parents separated when I was five or six. My mom got her master's and PhD as a single mom. So I that was like, that's my world to mm-hmm. live in an environment where my parent was in higher education, wasn't at everything, um, did their very best, et cetera. So when I am not at every single event for my kids, even though I'm quite honestly able to go to the vast majority of things, I don't feel badly about it because I, I also think that it's a gift to them to see how hard I'm working and how hard their dad is working to aid have a job that's really fulfilling and taking care of humans, period, yeah. but be like providing for them and 100%. what that looks like. And for me specifically, I really don't want our, I want our children to see me regardless of my gender and sex, but as like an able being that can do whatever she puts her mind to. Absolutely. And so in our household, you know, we have, we really work hard to eliminate gender norms and just sort of 
exemplify that the kids can like you can do you know whatever you want to do you just have to work hard and things that. that so I don't really feel guilty I also you know quite honestly and I think we'll probably talk about this we have a nanny yeah, no, tell us like who helps with the yeah. kids. Like, <laughs> so, you know, you are superhuman, but yes, obviously yeah. you can't do everything. Yeah. So we have a nanny. We, and actually, you know, going back, our first kiddo we had in California where we had no money and mm. crazy expenses, we had a nanny there because we had no help. And so our whole child rearing existence has been with the utilization of nannies because my partner is also a physician. And so if we have a sick kid, we can't just like cancel a schedule of patients without feeling horrible about it. So we've always used a nanny. Our current one, she is like an extension of our family. She has been with our family since our youngest was three months old. He's six. And so she is our everything. Like she is, is their second mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in conversations, the kids will be like, mom, April, like, we're almost like used interchangeably. And I think that that might threaten some women, but for me, it's like, that's, that's what I want. Like, I want my kids, if I'm not there to To be be surrounded by someone who loves them. Yeah. Just about as much. And so that also helps to take off that guilt because Mm -hmm. I know that when I'm not there, that there is like a similar, very strong maternal love that's there with them. I love that. Um, And so I just, I do me and I know that I can't really do it without her. Yeah. And so to go into that a bit further, you know, she works a lot for us. Um, We have her working 50 hours a week because that's like really our schedule in terms of what we do, right? And so she comes in in the morning, gets the kids ready for school. We're walking out the door to start our respective jobs. Um, And then she also does stuff around the house. Like she helps with laundry. Um, she, she does all things kid for sure. And then where time allows, she does adult. Just other things for mm-hmm. the home. But she'll do like grocery shopping and she'll make meals for us. Um, not every day, but most days. Mm-hmm. And that's been huge in terms of being able to come home and not at 5.30 or 6 be like, ugh. Now, what are we going to have for dinner? Yeah. You know, and we've we've sort of ebbed and flow in terms of do I meal plan, does she meal plan, and I just like show up and eat what what's at the table. Mm-hmm. And both of those have been effective, and I think they kind of run in seasons depending on what's happening for her and what's happening for me. And if I'm wanting to you know make some changes in what we're having for dinner at home or yeah. change my diet or whatnot, um, but we do have a lot of help. And when we, there was a time where she was temporarily kind of backing down because she also recently had a baby. And so I was like, okay, we still have these things that need to be done and trying to find someone to kind of come in a few hours per week to just do odds and odds things. Mm Because we, in order to be fully present for our kids when we're home, like those things have to happen by someone else. And we're kind of unapologetic about it at this point because it makes our quality time as a family so much better. Yeah. Um, And on the flip side, I will say that our kids, we spoil them definitely more so than what I had as a child. Oh, yeah. Um, I I see that in my reflection in my own childhood sometimes. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, our kids are expected to put away their laundry. Our kids are expected Mm -hmm. to clean up their rooms. Like, there's not a magic fairy that does everything for them. My kids actually do their own laundry. Oh, that's amazing. Ours aren't quite as old. I mean, there's a lot of help involved. (laughs) But But it's like those life skills. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not – like, doing everything for them isn't teaching them anything, right? But it's probably actually even harder – to make them do it 
and like yeah. walk them through the process. It is harder. It is It'd be so much easier if I just put their exactly. clothes away. But yeah. I want them to also just appreciate that you. The, it's just there's an, a magic laundry fairy. Like every time you take that shirt off because you decided you wanted three outfits today, right? Like you got to hang it back up. You can't just you know throw it in your laundry bin. And yeah. same goes with cooking and cleaning and putting your dishes in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're gonna they have to become successful humans one yes, day. Yes. So, so. Um, okay. Yeah. Is what other ways do you make your life easy? So, I mean, I have somebody who cleans my house. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the same. I do not apologize for it. It is what allows me to be present with my family and be present in my job and do all the things we do. Are there other little hacks that women are not thinking about? I've heard of people who even have laundry service. Yeah, or... we thought about that. We, um, I mean, because our nanny does our laundry, that's but if she wasn't, then we were going to outsource yeah. laundry for sure. We have someone who cleans our house weekly. We used to do every two weeks and then it just felt like we got too far behind. So now yeah. we do it weekly, which honestly is so amazing. Um, we have people do our lawn and we have people, you know, plant flowers for us. Yeah. Um, we, we aren't yet on the Christmas lights train, but you know, I know people are so, but you know, where we can outsource things, we definitely do. Yeah. Um, and I, it's brought us a lot of ease and, and joy in the moments that we have. So I'm Absolutely. at this, at this point, not apologizing about any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're young in your career and you don't have the finances to support those kind of things, you just make it work. Exactly. Um, you know, we just paid for the childcare, like keep them alive. And, you know, as they've grown yeah. bigger, uh, we've, we've definitely done a lot of the same things. Okay. You mentioned your husband's in medicine. Mm-hmm. Talk about like making time for your marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about ways to support the kids. How do you carve out time for that? Yeah, we do our best by traveling mm-hmm. quite honestly. Um, and we get a travel edge pretty frequently. That's kind of where we really exhale and kind of fall into what it was like when it was just the two of us without our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that long ago, actually, I remember my husband saying, "Like I, I really, I love being a dad, but I, I really miss when it's not just us." Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting, right? Um, so that's kind of how we just really reconnect. Um, it's been hard. I, I, I bet you would agree, but as our kids have gotten older, um, their schedules are becoming yeah. out of control. Totally out of control. <laughs> um, and so it's like, we're, you know, ships passing in the night in terms of like, okay, you're going to this basketball game. I'm going to this soccer game and like, we'll reconnect at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, but we also, we go on date nights or go out, um, without our kids every week. Um, cause that's just like intentionally mm-hmm. important for us. Um, because otherwise our kids always want our attention and we love yeah. them and we want to give that to them too. But and I think it's good for them too, to see what a loving bonded relationship looks like. Right. I remember our daughter was like, you're going on vacation again. Why aren't you taking us? And I looked her straight in the face and I said, because your daddy and I need time without you. And she was kind of like, but she kind of got it at the yeah. same time, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally agree. And as an OBGYN, honestly, if you don't leave town, yeah. it's really hard to unplug. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we are just constantly like inbox and voicemail and text messages and phone call, and we're pulled in all these directions mm-hmm. um, by our job and our family and our kids and, and everything. Mm-hmm. So it is yeah. just sometimes you literally just have to Get go online. off the grid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are maybe the top two places you and your husband have escaped to if women are like looking for ideas? Mm-hmm. You know, we, so we did our residency and fellowship in the Bay area and wine country is like our favorite 
place in the continental U.S. Hi. We go every year, if not more than once a year. Um, Mother's Day is like a, a really interesting holiday for me because, you know, while I'm a mom, it's like a really special time to be celebrated by my kids. But I also lost my mom when I was young. And so it's, it's mm. kind of like bittersweet. And I am a mom like 365 days of the year. Yeah. So on Mother's Day, I would prefer just being doing exactly what I would love, yeah. which isn't not necessarily being with my kids, quite yeah. honestly. So yeah. we go to wine country um, every Mother's every Day Mother's weekend. Day. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like an exhale. I, I love being there. I think it's one of the most beautiful places. And I love to geek out about the science of how wine is made yeah. and how it tastes and et cetera. So we do that. And I, I don't know anybody that hasn't loved it when they've gone. Incredible. That's one of our favorite places. Um, and then, you know, something very simple too, but we've been going to Colorado more often, especially now that the kids are older. But my husband was like, I feel, and this is sort of, I don't know, maybe transcendent, but I feel the closest to heaven when I'm in the mountains. Yeah. But it's just like one of the most beautiful places. Yeah. And again, it's like an easier place to unplug. Mm-hmm. Um We've traveled internationally a lot. Like I love going to Europe and all those things, but there's so many gems just close by. Yeah. There's like, there's a lot more hoops to jump through than just, you know, places that are not as far away. Well, I always joke. I love Nebraska. I'm biased. I'm born. I'm raised. I've actually never lived out of the state, but I think that traveling is so awesome when you live in Nebraska because we don't have oceans and we don't have mountains. And so you get to go to these places that are so incredible at all the things they have to offer because we don't have them. Exactly. No, (laughs) it's still a great place to live and raise your children. But yeah. Um, yeah, I just had a friend that relocated to Hawaii when you said like this transcendent feeling, like she just felt like called, like she was like, every time I was there, it just felt like me and I was alive. And mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes you can't ignore those feelings. No. So, um, how do you take care of yourself mentally and physically? A huge problem for a lot of doctors. <laughs> um, I exercise like most days of the week, six to seven days a week. How do you week. fit it in? So Zach and I, my husband, when we got together, we both were people who were exercised regularly. And actually I really didn't, I was a dancer growing up. So like going to the gym or running was like not something that I was like keen on, but in allotting time to take a break from studying from med school, like going on a run seemed like a reasonable reason to take a break. Yeah. And so that's how I got into running. Plus if you haven't run in DC, like you need to go because it's, there's some of the best running routes where you can run in front of the monuments. It's just like, I mean, the best running. Wow. So I got into running then and we would run together, he and I actually. And so then when we got married, we had some, and even before we got married, we had some really honest conversations about like the future mm-hmm. and just sort of like, I married you as is not like a hundred pounds heavier and whatnot. And so what can we do to like be our, who we came to the table indefinitely. And so we made this promise that if one of us wanted to work out, the answer was always yes. And that the other person would always just prioritize that and just make it possible to say yes. And that was when we had kids and and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And so it's always been something uh, like an unwritten rule that if one of us needs to do, move our bodies, the we'll figure it out. Yeah. So now how do I do that? I, I used to be an afternoon worker outer, mm. um, like that four o'clock, four thirty time, yeah. but then life 
and work bled into that. And so I had to really embrace the early morning <laughs> exercise, which I remember that transition was so painful. It just like felt like just even harder, but now it's, you're used to it. Oh my God. I just yeah. like, I can't not do it. Yeah. Um, it's so amazing. So I'm like, get up at five workout and then ready to rock and roll. Same way. It's the only time of the day that's like protected, yeah. you know, I mean, I'll occasionally have a gallon labor, but I wake up, my kids are still in bed, you know, and it's my time. I always mm -hmm. call it like pay yourself first. It's just yeah. like, okay, I've like poured into myself and now I'm ready to go. Now I'm ready to go to work. I'm ready. And honestly, it kind of gets your brain fired up, mm -hmm. gets everything going. So I love that. Do your kids exercise with you? Not if I am. But I mean, like they know that you guys work out. Like, is it part of kind of like the family culture of like yes, move your yeah. body? And yeah, they all play sports and yeah. are expected to move. And yeah. we're not really a sedentary family. Yeah. So we have yeah. bikes and go on bike rides. And I'd love that. we have our, like our little block that we live on is a third of a mile. So I've, there's been times where my husband is out of town. And so I couldn't, I didn't have a sitter. So I had to run like yeah. 12 laps around the block to get four <laughs> miles. And so I just put those kids and I was like, join me on a lap. And we yeah. would just, they would just run with me and take breaks. And I I don't, it's been really fun. I like love it. it. Okay. So you wake up at 5am to work out. Yep. Um, tell us more just like about your job. What's the, what's the daily life of an REI? Yeah, it's pretty variable um, depending on the day of the week. But for the most part, I'm it, I need to be in the office somewhere between probably seven and eight. Mm. So get up, work out, shower, pass off with a nanny, head to work. And then I'm usually there until five. Um, so I can, how many days a week? Five, five days a week. That's just because I really like my job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, allow uh, it. you <laughs> seem to be doing it. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I just can't, I love it so much anyways. So yeah, I'm usually at a there till five, but quite honestly, our patient care st stops before that. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, calling patients All with results and then just like business stuff that also mm -hmm. has to be decisions that need to be made. I head home at, I leave at five, home by 5.30. And then either there's, you know, dinner on the table or dinner ready, or, you know, it's almost ready. This is what I need to do to finish it. Or it's like my night to make dinner. And I've, yeah. I've already planned that out. Um, and then we have dinner as a family and either we're depending on the season, if it's soccer season, we're like schlepping kids all over. Totally. Um, now that we're in mostly basketball season and only one of our kids is playing, it's a little bit more, we've been able to engage in carpool. So we're a little bit more present at the moment. Uh, but then, you know, we like to engage our kids. We are kind of, I don't know, we're not really like a huge screen family. So we mm -hmm. avoid screen time for our kids and would rather, you know, do Legos with them or yeah. talk to them or, you know, just play with them, um, read with them. And then they get ready to go to bed. And then quite honestly, when once they're ready for bed, like that's my time to also start getting ready for bed yeah. because we're up at five. Like I can't be scrolling on the interwebs totally. late at night. Staying or up, have, watching no. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not in my wheelhouse. So I usually try to make my way towards getting ready for bed between 8.30 and 9. And then I have like a book or something that I'll read until mm -hmm. I'm ready to fall asleep. But usually I'm out by like 9.30. And I then love that. Yeah. Next day. Also, because sleep is so important. You, so important. Yes. For all the reasons. And so <laughs> many points in our career. I mean, no now sleep. there's our restrictions and whatnot. But literally, I mean, physicians for so long, it was just like, you're not allowed to sleep. Like right. you have to be on all the time and you're gonna work these 
36 hour shifts or 48 hours. I mean, it used to be a lot longer than that, but yeah, it's so important. Like you cannot function. Mm -mm. I I don't don't know what the statistic is. I'm going to make it up off the top of my head, but you know, something along the lines of like being awake for 24 hours is like being the blood alcohol of, you know, like multiple drinks Mm -hmm. who were supposed to be saving people's lives and being a parent. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I know if I have one middle of the night delivery, it takes me about 24 to 48 hours to like re- calibrate, I guess is what I'll call it, you know, from being awoken in the middle of the night. It's, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, okay. So, um, let's talk about your job literally in the sense of infertility, because Mm -hmm. there are, we've kind of touched on it, you know, when do you have babies and things like that? Define for us what infertility is for males and for females. Sure. Um, I mean, infertility in general is, especially if you're less than 35, is 12 months of unprotected sex and no conception. If you're, it's really that kind of for all people, if you will, but we recommend earlier evaluation if you're over 35 and less than 40. So if a female's or over 35 or less than 40, then they should be seen within six months. If they're over 40, they should actually be seen immediately. And that doesn't mean that like they need to immediately start into treatment, but they should be seen and evaluated, make sure there's nothing wrong. Like you don't need to do a trial run, like at least just make sure that all the players are at the table. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to proceed with attempts on your own, great. Or if you're like, we decided to start later and we didn't do any fertility preservation and we know we want two kids, then then your treatment needs to be geared at not only conception now, but fertility preservation for the future, things mm-hmm. like that. So that just like early evaluation allows those conversations to be had in a way that still allows people choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and for men, you know, it's the same thing. It's unprotected sex. There's just less of like an age cutoff per se. Um, but then, you know, with men, if, certainly if they don't have any sperm or if they have a history of cystic fibrosis or if they, you know, previously had a vasectomy or significant, you know, trauma, surgery, et cetera, then they need to be seen earlier as well. Yeah. Um, are you aware of any statistics like amongst women in medicine? Like, is there higher infertility? Or are they kind of similar to their age match peers? Or So the data is one in four female physicians experiences infertility. Wow. wow. So like That's a large a fraction of us. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do believe that it's mostly because we're delaying childbearing mm. to get there. I don't think it's because there's something that we're exposed to. Yeah. Um, but I think that that is relevant in women who are pursuing medicine. You know, women do make really amazing physicians and surgeons and, and they have really excellent outcomes. And I think women should definitely be at the table. Um, and I think women can have babies along the whole way. But I also think that if it, the timing's not right, then there are really great technologies that exist to help sort of pause the clock yeah. so that you can do what you want to do to be where you want to be and then revisit the the ovaries age um, unforgivingly, I would say. We've gotten really good at maintaining our health in a way that, you know, our parents probably weren't when we were the, mm-hmm. they were the same age. But our ovaries haven't caught up to that. The uterus is less um, fickle about the age. About. Exactly. So you can be older and carry a pregnancy um, with you know, perhaps some elevation of risk, but not um, the staggering statistics that we see if you start trying when you're in your 40s. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
So expand on these technologies for there's, you know, a 35 year old woman listening right now Mm -hmm. who's deep into her career in medicine and things are going well, but maybe she doesn't have a partner Mm -hmm. or something like that. What options does this patient have? Yeah. So I would say most of us recommend pursuing oocyte cryopreservation or egg freezing. That is kind of the most open-ended potential to freeze your fertility or preserve your fertility without committing a paternal lineage to your future fertility. The other option, if you have a partner um, and you're like without reservation at all um, about the future of your relationship, you could freeze embryos. Mm. But we also know that, you know, 50% of couples in the United States don't continue their marriages. Exactly. And so even couples who are married, quite honestly, I typically say, I know that you're married and I know that you love each other, but but like if, if we're, you know, you have a plan, what are we putting do? all your eggs in one <laughs> basket? Quite literally, you might want to either save half of as just eggs, just in case, or, um, just, just freeze eggs mm, Interesting. and then go to use those later on. And there's really nice, um, calculators that exist, uh, based upon data and science that can kind of estimate your odds of a live birth based upon your age and the number of eggs that you had at that age that were frozen so that you can freeze eggs to a point that you feel like you have a decent insurance policy. Yeah. What's the, what's like the upper age limit? Maybe there's somebody listening that's 40 or 45 or what's the cutoffs or are there cutoffs? Um, yeah. So I would say egg freezing, you can do it as you get older. It's just your egg quality and quantity goes down mm. and you're, it's less efficient and it feels like, um, potentially an unfulfilled promise if you're in your past, in your 40s, trying to freeze eggs. Okay. You absolutely can. Um, I would say in general, after from 44 and above, like you should be looking at pursuing utilization of an egg donor, okay. quite honestly. Um, the calculators don't even exist for 45 and above. Mm. So there, the, there really isn't a recommendation to be freezing gametes for fertility preservation at that age. You can do it younger as long as you are eyes wide open about, you know, what that might look like when we go to use those eggs. Mm. Um, but I, I don't have a problem with letting patients make autonomous decisions as long as they feel well-informed. Yeah. Yeah. What about like a really young gal that's listening right now? She's just graduated college. She's you know, 22, 23 years old, and she's going to medical school and she has no idea what the future holds. Is, is it a good idea to pursue that when you're really young and then, you know, not knowing what will, you know, be down the road or is it kind of like, no, just see how, see where life takes you and come back when you're 30 or what advice do you have for like a young girl listening? Yeah. I mean, a couple things I would say the benefit starts to come in when you're in your like mid thirties and you're still not sure what that's going to look like, but you know, at the end of the day, you want to become a parent. And really it's even more helpful if you know that you're not going to start trying until you're in your late 40s, late thirties, early forties. Like if you know, you're going to delay childbearing because you have, you know, let's say you're in a surgery residency that also is going to have another long fellowship Mm -hmm. and you know, it's going to be well over a decade addition. That makes sense. Even if you're young, quite honestly, but I usually don't, you know, tell all 21 to 23 year olds, absolutely freeze your eggs. There's a lot of life and a lot of reserve left. I think it's 
relevant to anyone who's having that inkling of getting some ovarian reserve testing and just sort of doing a check-in. And if everything looks age appropriate, then I think it's okay to say, let's regroup in a couple years. And if you're still not where you want to be, let's do it. And then on the flip side, if, if ovarian reserve testing is abnormal, not that that, you know, insinuates infertility, but that may change how she proceeds and she may decide, well, gosh, if my egg supply is lower than what I expected, maybe I should be freezing now just in case. And I think that's a helpful piece of information. That makes sense. Okay. I'm 35 years old. I am unpartnered and I want to come freeze my eggs. Mm -hmm. What does, what does the process actually look like? This is like a female physician. Mm -hmm. How much time am I going to take off work? What Mm -hmm. is this going to cost me? Can you Mm -hmm. give us some Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, absolutely. So in general, it takes about 12 days plus or minus two to stimulate the ovaries to grow the small follicles that you have in your ovaries so that they're big enough that when we go to retrieve the eggs, the eggs are what we call mature. And so while you're in that 12 day period, um, you're doing more or less probably daily or twice daily injections. And then you're having intermittent ultrasounds and blood work to monitor your response to said medications. And what that looks like for individuals varies to some degree based upon their protocol. But I would anticipate having three to five appointments. Um, These are quick appointments. These are like quick ultrasound blood work. You get a call later Mm -hmm. in the afternoon. And, you know, most REI clinics are scanning people or seeing patients by like 6, 630 in the morning. So you can get in and get out. Um, And then your retrieval is done under general IV anesthesia for most practices. So propofol. So you need a sober driver. Can't work that day. And most people are okay to go back the next day. The only thing is just kind of, you got to let someone in your team know that you're, you're doing something that's going to require you to, without much notice, not be able to present to work. Yeah. Right. Because there could be complications or. No, just more like. pretty low risk? Yeah. The complication risk is super low. It's more just like, we don't know exactly when we're going to trigger you until we got know. It. And okay. that's like a moving target. So it could be Tuesday, could be Wednesday. Exactly. Could be, so you need some sort of flexibility. Exactly. And so, you know, for most of us who have patients who have been scheduled months in advance, mm-hmm. it's, it's challenging to do that. So some yeah. people in training, for example, will call me and say, I have vacation this week. Mm. And so then we will plan it so that their estimated retrieval falls in that week so that they can do this without a huge burden. And and we can do that for other physicians. I mean, I think probably most physicians listening to this, um, I think it's really important to care for each other, you know, with that. I mean, I treat all of my patients with TLC, right? Mm -hmm. But there's just, I don't know, I have... I think because we all know what we went through to be where we are, there's that additional grace that's like allotted to other physicians. And I think um, we do whatever we possibly can to make it doable. Yeah. We help out our our colleagues. Yeah. That's for sure. I've taken care of a few patients who have been in a place in their career where they've just decided to be a single parent by choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us what that process is like for somebody coming to see you. Yeah. Um, So that person would still undergo some version of basic infertility testing just to figure out, are their fallopian tubes open? Mm -hmm. What is their ovarian reserve? Are we going to need to use medications? I mean, the best thing, if they've never tried to get pregnant, we assume that they're not infertile, right? Um, But they still have to buy donor sperm, right? Which is like not not inexpensive. Quite what honestly. does donor sperm cost? I mean, I would 1500, have no idea. 2000 a okay. vial. 
And one vial works for one insemination. Mm. And if you're 35 and you have no infertility, your chance of getting pregnant is 20%. So there's an 80% chance that first vial isn't going to get you to the goal line. So, you know, that's, to me, I would rather know that everything's in working order than to start spending money that then will start to rack up if we don't know that everything you know, is capable of functioning the way we expect. So anyways, basic testing, just check the fallopian tubes um, with a test that's called a hysterosalpingogram, check ovarian reserve. Um, The other thing with donor sperm is that sperm donors are screened for a large quantity of genetic mutations um, to get information. And so offering that similar genetic testing to um, the person attempting treatment so that she knows that the donor she's selecting doesn't increase her risk of having a kiddo with an incurable genetic disorder, et cetera. But then once I get started, I think depending on her age, her reserve, her, if her cycles are, you know, still hold normal, then really all we need to do is monitor for ovulation, put sperm in the right place in the right time, check a pregnancy test two weeks later. Um, I think I see a lot of patients who get impatient doing that. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, you know, can we just like add some drugs into this? And then I have to remember people sorry, remind people that that's how we increase our risk of multiples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you feel about being a single parent and having twins, for example? Yeah. Like what support system do you really have? So we have those conversations, but um, that's definitely a viable option. I, and I actually think that I'm seeing, I'm curious if you are, but I'm definitely seeing more women who are like, I'm ready to be a mom. And that partner is just not in my wheelhouse and yep. I'm not going to not be a mom. So let's I've just do it. I've definitely seen it more in the last couple of years than I had yeah. really in my career. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they always seem to be uh, very professional women. They're kind of in these like high achieving, you know, jobs and, and careers and they know they want a family and they know that, you know, their fertility has a time clock on it yeah. and they're ready to do it. And same thing, you know, I talk to those patients too. Okay. What's your support system? Exactly. Like what? Cause I knew what it was like. And I leaned on my partner like heavily mm-hmm. when my child, you know, when the girls were really little. So you definitely need that in place. Um, to backtrack for just a second, cryopreservation, what would somebody expect to pay for that if yeah. they went through like one cycle of freezing their eggs. Yeah. I, around 8,000, 8,500 is okay. pretty national average. Okay. Is there an outcome difference if you freeze eggs versus freezing embryos? Yes. Freezing eggs is the most versatile way that you can preserve your fertility, okay. but there's the least amount known about the reproductive potential of those eggs. Mm. If we make embryos and we even go to the point of testing those embryos to assess, you know, chromosome content, and we know that you have euploid or or embryos that have two pairs of 23 chromosomes, like then your odds of implantation go up or like pregnancy, live birth are like 65 plus percent. So that's a huge different amount of information that you have when you have embryos versus eggs. Eggs thaw at about 90, 90% of eggs will recover. And then we inject um, with sperm for fertilization and then culture them and and watch things play out. And beyond that, once they survive the thaw, they should behave as the age they were when they were retrieved, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But if we, you know, there are young women who go through IVF who have a higher percentage of aneuploid embryos than what we would expect. And if we hadn't tested, we would have assumed that there was something else wrong with her right. or she would have, she would have assumed that she had 
you know, six embryos, that's enough for two kids, right? But she found out that there was only one or two normal. And then she's like, now she's 42, you know? Absolutely. So I think the other thing that's starting to come up is the advantage of fertility preservation. I always counsel patients, these are for backup for second or third baby. So try, if you haven't ever tried, go try, freeze, whatever, try. And if you can't get pregnant, of course, we'll use these. But if you can, then like this is so that you can complete your family in yeah. full and you're not needing an egg donor for it's like an later on. Policy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I, the technology just blows my mind. I mean, just delivering babies is magical to me every time. But mm-hmm. the thought of like freezing an embryo, unthawing it, putting it into the uterus and that it turns into a human life just literally blows my mind. Yeah. I just did some embryo transfers right after my clinic before I came here today. And it's like magical. So crazy. You literally just like created life (laughs) Well, and you're keeping me in business. So that's lovely too. Okay. Technology though. What is like the new hot things? I mean, AI is like taking over Uh, the world. Like are there, what are the new cool things in REI that would blow our minds? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind? There's a lot sort of still um, in the works, nothing that's really kind of said for sure. I think big things right now are AI for maintenance of cryopreserved gametes and embryos to make sure Mm. that the right embryo is placed in the right patient. Um, You know, everyone probably rarely, and it's not common, but when it happens, Human it's like, mistakes. yeah, it's a yeah. big deal. So that's, that's in the pipeline. And then there's AI for, so a while back, God, it's been probably at least 10 years. Um, time-lapse imaging came out where mm. embryos would incubate in an incubator that would have this special equipment that it could watch the embryo as it divided and get more information about that. And now they're, Interesting. that's just really cool. We have incubators like that and it's just really neat to see it all happen. Yeah. But the, the science of like, what does it actually tell us? We're still learning. Does the patient get that video? I can just imagine that they're like high school graduation. You're like, and here you <laughs> are. <is> you. <laughs> yeah. So definitely clinics can do offer that at a wow. charge. I know. Of course. Um, yeah. But now they're adding on AI to that, um, that evolution of the embryo to help to choose the, the first. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, even amongst embryos that have been tested for chromosomes versus not. And I think what we're all trying to do is how can we learn more information about the embryo without biopsying it? I mean, we do embryo biopsy all day, every day and the embryos do great, but it is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a way that we can take culture media from where the embryo is growing and get genetics from that, or if we can learn more just based upon how the cells are dividing. Great. But all of that scan it or ultrasound it or some less invasive way. Yeah. All all those things are still, um, in evolution. Wow. But it's really cool. Wow. And then the other thing is like, you know, I actually just talked to a patient the other day. It was like, so your odds of success are about 65% with a euploid embryo, which is awesome. I mean, IVF success rates, you know, 30 years ago, we're like 20%, yeah. you know, it's like really evolved. And now we're, we're giving those statistics with one embryo at a time. And it used to be that, you know, people are so putting like, in this embryo, here's your chance. This embryo, yeah. here's your chance. Yeah. Incredible. But still it's not hundred mm-hmm. percent. And people are like, so why, what's the other, what's, what's keeping it from, from being and successful. So yeah. That's where we're still also just spending a ton of 
time and, mm. and energy is trying to understand either why certain newborn embryos aren't making babies or what is involved in implantation that's mm-hmm. preventing, you know, the uterine environment, the uterus, microbiome, all the yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Wow. So it's cool. Wow. Well, this has been so fun, Dr. Gustin. Tell people where they can find you, your social media handles, your clinic. Yeah. So my social media is Instagram at Stephanie Gustin MD. And then our clinic is the Heartland Center for Reproductive Medicine. Our website is www.heartlandfertility.com. I know I'm so honored to share patients with you and be one of your colleagues. And thank you so much for all your incredible information today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Steph. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you could do us a little favor and share it with your friends and family that you know would find it helpful, just go ahead and like, subscribe, and share. We appreciate you. 